This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Good day to you and welcome to America Changed Forever. On this episode, the January 6th attack on the Capitol. In the last few days, Americans took a look back on that terrible day in this country's history. Thousands of people descended on the Capitol. It was an armed attack that led to the deaths of five police officers. More than 140 police officers were injured, many of them violently attacked by mobs. In one instance, a man beat a police officer with a flagpole holding an American flag. On Thursday, President Biden blamed former President Trump for spreading a web of lies about the 2020 election. Mr. Trump has claimed for more than a year that the 2020 vote was fraudulent. We must be absolutely clear about what is true and what is a lie. And here's the truth. The former president of the United States of America has created and spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. He's done so because he values power over principle, because he sees his own interest as more important than his country's interest, than America's interest. Former President Trump, he slammed President Biden's speech, calling it political theater. Mr. Trump also repeated his false claims of a rigged election. The day before President Biden's speech, Attorney General Merrick Garland updated the American people on the investigation into the attack. There have been more than 700 arrests, but investigators are still looking for more than 250 people who allegedly assaulted police. But could the investigation lead to charges against others? Critics of the investigation so far want Garland to take the gloves off and go after former President Trump and others who may have been pulling the strings that led to the insurrection. Garland said that there are those who could face charges who didn't storm the Capitol. The actions we have taken thus far will not be our last. The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6 perpetrators at any level accountable under law whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. We will follow the facts wherever they lead. The Attorney General also talked about an anti-authority sentiment that is coursing through America, whether it's people attacking flight attendants on planes, threatening lawmakers or elections officials, even librarians. What is going on in America? And was January 6th just a symptom of something far more concerning right now about this democracy? Nancy McLean is a Duke University professor of history and public policy. She is also the author of Democracy in Chains, the Deep History of the Radical Right Stealth Plan for America. As we look back on this anniversary, where do you think January 6th stands in terms of American history? I hate to say this, but I think that we have not seen anything this serious uh, since the Civil War period. What we saw on January 6th was an attack on our country, an attack on the most basic element of American democracy, which is the peaceful transfer of power. And what we had was a faction of uh, a political party, the MAGA faction, uh, that worked in concert, we're starting to learn with uh, officials in the White House and in Congress to overthrow uh, the election, to prevent 
the certification of the people's will in a legitimate uh, election that turned out the largest number of voters in our history to overthrow the will of the people and to try to keep the incumbent office holder in power. It, is, it was what political scientists call a self-coup when an existing official tries to stay in power by unlawful means uh, um, using the kind of thing that we saw on uh, January 6th. All right. So you you obviously see it as a, as an extremely disturbing event, not to use your words exactly. But I mean, what you're saying is this this stacks up here in the history of this country in terms of divisive and dangerous historical events. So that said, I'm sure you've seen it in the halls of Congress. Uh, you know, some people don't see it that way. They, you know, some people have said, <laughs> which is hard to repeat, but I'm just repeating what some politicians have said. You know, these were tourists. These were people who were just out to see the Capitol, as ridiculous as that sounds. You know, how do you respond to that? If you see the history of this event in history a certain way, and, and you know, 35% of the population sees it a entirely different way. Yeah, I think, you know, it just, honestly, as a citizen and as a historian, it breaks my heart to, to hear that language, uh, again, minimizing these events. And I think it's really important that we all remember back to the night of the uh, insurrection and to the following week when many leading Republicans said, this has gone too far, it's too much. Many sitting members of Congress tried to call the president, tried to get him to call the mob off, you know, tried to disassociate from these events. But what we're seeing, sadly, is the capture of one of our major political parties by a radicalized faction that is also backed by big donor money. I personally study the Koch network, but also we've seen mounting evidence that, you know, something like 147 companies, corporations uh, said they would no longer give to candidates who uh, wouldn't vote to certify the election. Now that's down to seven. So what we're talking about is something that is not a one-off event that is deeply ingrained in a number of different patterns uh, in our, our history, our recent history. And that, I think, is what needs attention if we're going to prevent this from happening again. Um, I could explain that if you'd like in, in a bit more detail. Yeah, go right ahead. So uh, so what we're hearing now from the House Select Committee to investigate the events of January 6th is that they're seeing effectively three circles of activity. One, uh, a large, the largest uh, circle and the less culpable circle were avid supporters of the president, MAGA, you know, members of this MAGA faction who believed the big lie that the election had been stolen, who came to the Capitol in order to support their president. That big circle and the disinformation that made them believe that big lie is the product of long cultivation through the systematic disinformation of Fox News Network, the uh, the the Koch Network's um, uh, uh, use of disinformation on multiple issues over the years. And I've published uh, about this with the Social Science Research Council. Um, the next circle of activity was the kind of white power groups, the groups Groups like the Proud Boys, you know, is the best known of them. But those were the violent insurrectionists, the ones who were in the lead of breaking down the doors and windows, attacking police. And remember, seven policemen, or, you know, police lost their lives as a result of this, and 140 people were injured. So this was no tourist walking through the Capitol. So they are also something to be aware of. And they also have a deep history in this country. Uh, I wrote about the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. Others have written about the more recent white power movement, but there are no lone, lone wolves in this. There are people who are part of a movement and a cause, who exchange information, who share weapons training, who do all these things. So that's the second circle. The third and most alarming circle to me as a historian is the inner circle, the circle inside the White House and inside Congress of these MAGA officials who 
knew that they were trying to overthrow the election, who were calling the states, trying to prevent states like most famously Georgia um, and uh, Mr. Raffensperger from doing an honest uh, count of the vote and telling them to go find votes that didn't exist. And what's most scary to me, given what I've studied with the Koch network and the wider uh, uh, group of Uh, very arch-right donors who are shaping the Republican Party, is that this, again, was not a one-off. The legal um, and constitutional ideas, the fig leaves that are being used to support that effort, that insider coup effort, are the product of decades of of cultivation in groups like the Federalist Society. Um, From that Federalist Society has come this notion of the independent state legislative doctrine. I don't mean to go too much into the weeds for your listeners. But basically, that's what they are using to try to say that state legislatures can overthrow the will of the people, of the majority of voters. And what's really alarming in all this is what has happened since January 6th, because since January uh, 6th, that MAGA faction in state legislatures around the country, including my own in North Carolina, has been systematically trying to rewrite the rules for the next election, passing measures to suppress the vote of people who won't support this cause, uh, working to uh, uh, change the way that elections are run, to put them in partisan hands, and actually using kind of vigilante-like tactics to drive people from public service. So we have had hundreds of elected officials in the states who are leaving election administration because of the death threats that they have personally experienced or threats to their families uh, and and their homes. So this is an absolutely, you know, make or break moment for the future of our country. It is urgent that people pay attention to how serious the uh, events of January 6th were, but as important, how serious the actions that are going on now in the states are, because in effect, uh, they, uh, people in this MAGA faction of the Republican Party are laying the groundwork, if they succeed uh, in in winning in 2022, to make sure that in 2024, this minority party will be able to essentially take the election from the voters. And that's especially alarming to people of color in this country, because this MAGA faction is nearly 100% white, um, and they're using historic Jim Crow tactics like voter suppression, uh, like this radical gerrymandering, uh, and like changing the way elections are counted to deny the choices of the voters. And that will have impact on all of us, but is, is particularly aimed at uh, voters of color who don't agree with the project of this this MAGA movement. You have said, and this is a, a direct quote, if we don't reckon with the deep historical roots of what happened this time last year, those events could be prologue to a far worse outcome in the future. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Uh, well, I think some of I hope some of what I conveyed began to suggest that. But, you know, Americans need to be asking, why is Tucker Carlson from Fox News? Why is the conservative uh, political action committee going to places of known autocrats run by autocrats like Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil? They've gone there to meet. They've gone to um, uh, Victor Orban's Hungary. Donald Trump has endorsed Victor Orban as the head of Uh, the Hungarian state. Now, we're talking about people who are absolutely committed authoritarians and autocrats, you know, who invoke violence, who have used the tools of democracy to undermine and destroy democracy. And to me, as a U.S. historian, it is absolutely chilling that members of a major media network and members of one of our two major political parties is looking to those places for guidance on how to transform our country so that it no longer represents the will of the majority. So, you know, I don't have serious enough language to convey how urgent it is for people to be paying attention to what happens in our politics this year. You know, if some of your listeners may be old enough to remember the nuclear clock uh, during the Cold War that would measure how close to midnight we were to the danger of a nuclear uh, uh, collision. 
I would say on the democracy clock, if we had an equivalent democracy clock, we are two minutes to midnight or in in military terms, DEFCON 2. This is absolutely serious that we pay attention. Uh, Recently, three former generals spoke out in an opinion piece and warned that if this continues, if we don't take the election, the insurrection of January 2021 seriously, and if there is not accountability for all those involved, including the members of Congress and other elected officials who encourage this, they are afraid that a future contested election could split the American military. That is a professional military that throughout its history has taken pride in its nonpartisan support of our country, our national security, and they are warning of the danger of an open split in the ranks with members of the armed forces possibly shooting each other and other Americans because of the the, the nadir that we have reached uh, as a result of the big lie and what's going on with this MAGA faction. So we have to take this seriously. I want to be very clear. This is not about all Republicans. My father voted for the Republican Party for all of his life, basically, except for one election uh, when he died in uh, 2000. I know other Republicans who are scratching their heads, wondering what happened to their party. I've read that uh, I think it's 20,000 or 40,000 Arizona Republicans left the Republican Party uh, after the insurrection and the the fraudulent, crazy recount that the, the Arizona Party organized in that state. So this is not a partisan matter. This is about the defense of democracy, small d, so that we can have open election competition in the future so that the people can decide what policies they want to see promoted. And if we don't understand what happened on January 6th, we are going to lose the ability to have open policy competition because the outcome of our elections will be rigged in advance. Well, you you paint a very vivid picture of some nightmare scenarios that, of course, I hope as an American don't become reality. Nancy, thank you. Thank you. And I will say it's not just me. Leading political scientists, historians, and economists are playing, speaking from the or singing from the same hymnal now. This is really serious. It is not something to minimize. I get it. Thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. The 2022 and really 2024 elections for members of Congress and even president is underway. You see, most people think that rough and tumble election year politics stops once a new president is elected, once the congressional elections end, but that's really not the case. The battle, the war between the Republicans and Democrats seems never ending. And right now, the battle in the trenches is about redistricting and voting rights. And whoever wins the battle will pave the way for control of Congress and even the White House and even the Supreme Court. Here's the deal. Some Republicans believe the 2020 election was stolen from former President Trump. So they have decided to push voter ID laws, laws that would limit mail-in voting and create voting districts that ensure that certain candidates have a greater likelihood of getting elected. Democrats counter that voter ID laws unfairly impact people of color and that certain voting districts are being created in states like Texas that would likely water down the votes of people of color. All right, so I set you up there. There's a lot to discuss. And to do it, we're going to bring in Congressman Mark V.C. of Texas, who is the founder of the Voting Rights Caucus in the House. Congressman, thanks for being with us. Uh, Wonderful to be on your show, uh, especially to talk about something as important as voting rights, uh, because, you know, that's what our democracy is all about. Yeah, and I really, you know, it's one of those issues that I've paid attention to, sort of, but not really paid attention to until, you know, I, I cover DOJ in my day job. That's what I tell everybody. I have a day job, too. But when I when I heard Vanita Gupta, who is with the Department of Justice, sort of outline redistricting and what, you know, they allege the state of Texas is trying to do, uh, you know, it sort of hits home as a person of color. But in a way, Congressman, I, I 
listen, there, there are some hurt feelings post 2020 election Republicans, a lot of Republicans out there think the election was stolen. So they want to change how people vote and they want to change, you know, voter ID laws. Um, you know, there, there are some people who, who can buy into what they're saying. It's too easy for people to vote out there. You know, what's the problem with asking someone for an ID? Well, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I would say, you know, um, one of the reasons why I founded the Voting Rights Caucus is because, you know, being working in Texas politics for as long as I have now and, and you know, as a member of Congress in my fifth term uh, in the state legislature for four terms, working for a member of Congress uh, that was part of the Texas delegation before that, uh, when they first started talking about some of these laws that would make it harder for people to vote and that there were too many people out there voting and talk radio shows were saying things like, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, maybe what's, what's wrong with the literacy test? You know, just, just some of the more, uh, uh, you know, kind of blatant things that they were out there talking about. I knew that we needed to step in and do something. And I also knew that uh, after the voter ID bill finally passed in Texas and many other states, that that wasn't going to be the last, uh, the, the last grasp, right? That wasn't going to be their, their last uh, effort. Uh, to uh, turn back voting rights in this country. You mentioned a literacy test, and I, I'll be honest with you, I don't follow everything that's going on in Texas, though I know there's a lot going on in Texas. But they haven't actually passed a literacy test, have they? They have not passed a literacy test, but it's not unusual to turn on uh, the talk radio shows here in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. There's one station that's very popular, uh, and it wasn't unusual to turn on those shows and hear people saying things like, you know, why shouldn't people, you know, have to take a test on just basic fundamentals of who the founding fathers were? Or why shouldn't people have to take uh, some tests to be able to answer basic questions about our democracy to make sure that they're not a threat to our democracy? You'd hear people just openly saying things like that uh, all the time. And so it's not really a stretch to me that, uh, that, that, that they would embrace these laws that would make it a lot harder for people to vote because for years now they have been talking about ways that, uh, that, that, that could be put in the law that would make it more difficult for people that they think don't think like them, uh, and make it harder for them, for them to vote. And it's, and it's, it's sad that we're there. Uh, because that's that's shouldn't be what democracy is all about. Uh, but I think the dangerous thing that people need to think about is that in their mindset, that that is democracy to them. Democracy in their mindset is people that don't think like them not being able to vote. Uh, and so democracy and and someone like you know my mindset is everyone being able to vote. Uh, and when you don't win you go back two years or four years later and you try again. Uh, but that is unfortunately not where the modern conservative movement uh, in this country is. Uh, and and I'm telling you right now, uh, the, the law that was passed in Texas that was very restrictive, the law that was passed in Georgia to make it harder for people to vote by mail, the voter ID laws that were passed, uh, uh, you know, you know, four or six years ago in many states, uh, this this is just the beginning. You're going to see them go back uh, and look at different ways that will make it harder and harder to vote until uh, and, 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 and until they can get put together the voting universes that they think are going to be more favorable to them uh, in electoral outcomes. And I just want to talk about a l tiny bit more on this literacy test thing, give people a little history lesson from a people of color uh, perspective. The reason why people of color find that so offensive is because at the height of Jim Crow, that's what black people had to do, you know, pass a literally literacy test to vote. And so, you know, people who aren't familiar with that history, that's why people get so offended when you say something like that. And it just comes off as, you know, it's just not a good look when you're talking about uh, security uh, in terms of the vote that people cast, things like that. 
you know, if you want to have a successful message, there's no way you can bring up something like a literacy test. But perhaps, I don't know, I mean, maybe that's something that would work in Texas these days. Uh, And there are a lot of people who would be offended by that. So let's let's move on to some of these other restrictions that they're talking about, not only Texas, but across the country, uh, especially in the so-called red states. Uh, should there be more restrictions on people voting by mail? Isn't it easier for someone to cast a fraudulent vote if they're just dropping it in the mail? Here's what's so amazing about the vote by mail scenario. Uh, And again, you saw it in Georgia uh, with their absentee ballot program that they have there. And and you saw it in in Texas uh, with the law that was just passed that, uh, makes it harder for people to vote. And in Texas, there are already restrictions on vote by mail. I don't think a lot of people nationally realize that. In Texas, you can only vote by mail if you're 65 or, or over, uh, disabled, or if you're traveling and you won't be in your home county uh, on election day. And the ballot actually has to be mailed from outside of county lines uh, in order for it to count. Uh, and there's a And there's a board that has an equal number of Democrats and Republicans, and they look at the envelopes uh, to make sure that the signatures match, uh, to make sure that things like ballots are actually mailed from outside of the county. Uh, and if they don't follow our already very strict criteria, those ballots are thrown out. Uh, and so Texas already has a very rigorous vetting process uh, for voting. And, and just like in Texas and Georgia, the Republicans had a huge advantage in vote by mail for a long time. Uh, uh, and, um, and then when it started to seem like that Democrats were catching up in this area, then they were like, Hey, we need to make it harder to vote. And now what, 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 you know, the, and, and the, and the effect of that, that people have to realize is that sure, they're making it harder for Democrats to vote, but with so many people, uh, that vote, uh, Democratic being in Texas, for instance, Black or Hispanic, what ends up happening is that you're making it a lot harder for people of color, uh, like in the districts that I represent, uh, that vote heavily Democratic, to be able to cast their vote. And so Republicans will oftentimes throw their hands up in the air and say, no, we're not doing it. We're, we're doing this to hurt Democrats. We're not doing it to hurt people of color. We're doing it to hurt Democrats. But if you put together, if, if you make it, if you, for instance, with, with the Texas uh, vote by mail law now, where you have to put the last four digits of your social security number or your driver's license on the ballot. And then you have to all, and, and, and it has to match that uh, on the application. You're making it harder for people, you know, like my grandmother that just passed away a couple of years ago. That's she voted by mail all the time and never had any problems voting by mail. But if you're going to force her to look for her driver's license that she didn't use the last 20 years of her life. So she can find the last four digits on on, on that document, then you're making it harder uh, for uh, people like her to vote. And that's just wrong. Uh, and they know good and well that it disproportionately affects communities of color. Why is it there is this perception out there that the Republicans are better at fighting these kinds of battles than the Democrats are? Are you concerned that the Democrats are having their lunch handed to them in this run-up to the midterm elections and even the presidential elections of 2024 with the the redistricting, with the voting rights laws. Uh, How do you respond to that Um, criticism from Democrats? I understand people's concern. I mean, look at what's happening right now in redistricting. We're seeing it in Texas. Uh, We're seeing it in in other Southern states and other states that used to have to get what was known as pre-clearance before maps could be signed into law. Um, and everyone is paying attention to the congressional lines. But I got to tell you, if you look at state legislative lines in places like Texas and places like North Carolina and other states uh, where they have done or they're doing redistricting or have already completed redistricting, you're, you're seeing the watering down of black opportunity districts, Latino opportunity districts. You're seeing the watering down of these districts at record numbers like never before, because these jurisdictions no longer have to get pre-clearance. And so I can understand people's concerns, people's anxiety. Uh, we really do need John Lewis Voting Rights Act 
to be passed uh, because it would put preclearance back into place in states like mine where elected officials on the Republican side have just decided we're going to do whatever we want to uh, as it relates to the, these lines being drawn. Uh, and uh, and we're going to, to, to uh, try to accumulate as much power at the expenses of minorities, uh, regardless of what is left of the Voting Rights Act. And so, yeah, I, I totally get that people are upset, uh, but know that there are people like myself, uh, you know, Terry Sewell, Nakima Williams, other people in the United States House of Representatives that are fighting hard uh, to try and get John Lewis Voting Rights Act passed. So at the very least, uh, even if we're not able to affect redistricting this time around, these states that have already passed plans, that we can stop any more bleeding when it comes to very aggressive, very partisan, uh, very discriminatory uh, voter ID, voter suppression-like bills uh, that you've seen now. Uh, you know, this this, this past legislative uh, cycle session in Texas uh, and really going back to the last eight years now. Uh, but, and, and again, people should be concerned because they, they're, they're not stopping. Uh, they're going to continue to look for different types of schemes that are going to make it very difficult for people of color to vote. As we discuss voting rights, the Democrats have a lot of problems right now. I don't know if you're going to agree with that, but if you look at what's going on with the economy, I was watching the news recently, and there was a story about inflation and how people are feeling it when they go to the, the pump to fill their cars with gas or they gro go to the grocery store. And it just reminded me, frankly, of George H. Walker Bush uh, when he was president and people asked him, somebody asked him the price of a gallon of milk and he didn't know. And that haunted him. And I see President Biden weighing in on these rising prices. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure his aides have told him, listen, you, you know, people want to know that you care. How big a problem is this? These, you know, dinner table issues that uh, Democrats and Republicans are feeling every day in their pocketbook. How big a problem is that for you as a Democrat? Look, I think that Republicans and Donald Trump did our economy a disservice when they were in charge and they reacted so slowly and did not take COVID seriously. Uh, a lot of the issues around supply chain, a lot of the issues around inflation, we wouldn't be seeing them today had it not been for their lack of leadership uh, and them just sitting on their hands and doing absolutely nothing. Now, with that said, I understand that that's fair, but I, I would just say there, I can hear people saying now, well, Biden has been president for almost a year, you know, so he, does he not own this economy and this inflation? I think if you look at the polling, you'll see that the American public uh, has confidence in the way that Biden is handling uh, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the vaccine and coronavirus efforts. Uh, and I also think that, look, it's, it's going to take, uh, some time to clean that mess up that the Republicans left behind. I don't think there's any question about that. And if you go back and you look at history and you look at, uh, how different presidents have tried to, uh, especially during this, during the, the period of the 1970s where they've tried to have an impact on inflation, you know, it's very tough. It's, it's, it's difficult, but I like the fact that the CEO of our, of our, uh, country, country's largest retailer, uh, Walmart, uh, that they're saying that, uh, that they like what Biden is doing when it comes to his efforts on the supply chain. You know, that's good news. Uh, it's, it's not going to be something that's going to be solved overnight. It's just not going to happen. It took the Republicans a long time to create this mess. And it's going to take President Biden a little time to figure out how he gets us out of it. But the fact that you have uh, a company, you know, like Walmart that has traditionally supported uh, conservatives uh, and conservative movements and the fact that they're saying that, hey, this president is doing all the right things when it comes to issues around supply chain, which in the long term will help us with inflation. I like that. Um uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to have to go out on the campaign trail in 2022 and tell more stories like that uh, and just uh, remind the American public that you don't want uh, people that 
are trying to be nonchalant and downplay what happened at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th to be in charge of your government. But that's not the future. Think about what happened on January 6th and think about that picture. That is not the future that you want for your kids and your grandkids. Tell me about your district. Uh, what do people, when they see you on the streets in their community, what, what do they ask you? What do they want to know? What do they want you to do for them? Uh, people talk with me a lot about uh, about what you just mentioned, about economic issues, uh, even in very good times. Uh, people in the district that I represent talk with me about economic issues. I represent one of the uh, lowest uh, uh, household income districts in the entire country. I have a, about a third of the constituencies that I represent uh, 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 don't have health care insurance. And so health care insurance, prescription drug prices, uh, the future for their kids and grandkids. I have a lot of grandparents that are raising grandkids in my district. Uh, they want to know about the future and what that looks like, what sort of opportunities are going to be uh, available to their grandkids and their great-grandkids. And so uh, for me, uh, the economy is something that I talk about all the time. Opportunity is something that I talk about all the time. Uh, how people can get help uh, to improve uh, where they're at in life or where their kids can get help to improve where they're at in life is always my top priority. Elections officials across the country are still facing threats about the 2020 election. Adam Brewster is a CBS News political reporter. Adam, thanks for being with us. All right. This is, you know, I was really looking forward to discussing this issue with you because I think the majority of Americans don't know what kind of challenges election officials across the country are facing right now. And all of this is tiled all of this is tied into what happened on January 6th, I think. It's all part of the pattern. Um, you know, this this sense that there, there are Americans out there who don't trust government, who think there is some sort of uh, conspiracy against them. And, and of course, they have bought into this narrative that President Trump was the real winner of the 2020 election, and so on and so forth. But I, I think the stories of these people who are trying to ensure that the elections going forward are credible, uh, while also insisting that the election in 2020 was credible, their story needs to be told as well. And and the headline from your uh, article is key local election officials in battleground states still face threats over a year after the 2020 election. What did you find? So what we've found is that really over the past year since January 6th, but even more specifically going back to early November 2020, um, and heck, possibly even before, but certainly after the election, um, many election workers, particularly in the hotly contested battleground states, places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, um, have faced threats because people were upset about the outcome of the election and have bought into um, this idea that there was widespread fraud, and that is what uh, caused the election to go the way that it did. And we, of course, know that dozens of courts, uh, the Justice Department under President Trump, the Department of Homeland Security under President Trump, uh, audits by uh, election officials across the country have you know, confirmed that the results uh, were accurate and that President Biden won the election. But that you know, these officials have faced you know, really intimidating messages. They have come online, uh, whether that's via email or social media. There have been uh, certainly many threatening voicemails left for officials. Um, there have also been instances of uh, officials being uh, receiving messages, threatening messages to their home or people showing up outside their homes or confronting them on walks in their neighborhood. Um, and the overarching you know, feeling that you get speaking to these officials is that this takes a big toll on them, but that many of them are committed to sticking with this job and it sort of strengthens their resolve to press on 
as we head towards the 2022. Adam, tell me the story of the executive director of the Milwaukee Election Commission. This is uh, Claire Woodall Vogue. Uh, She's the City of Milwaukee Election Commission Executive Director. Um, She is someone who has received uh, a lot of threats uh, for her work. Um, Before the election happened, uh, she was telling the public uh, that results from Milwaukee were probably going to come in the middle of the night because Wisconsin doesn't allow them to start processing absentee ballots until Election Day. And this was a message she was pretty consistent on. Milwaukee also had late uh, election results during the 2018 gubernatorial election. Uh, So she faced, you know, a barrage of threats afterwards, people who were suspicious about results that came in the middle of the night. And that the results from Milwaukee basically flipped the race in Wisconsin. And from that point forward, uh, the race continued, the presidential race in states continued to go towards President Biden uh, because it was largely mail ballots that were being counted. And we know that those were overwhelmingly cast in favor of Mr. Biden. Um, Over the summer, uh, the threats were renewed. Uh, Claire uh, Woodall-Vogue received an email from an elections consultant uh, who said to her, you know, you have a flair for drama, delivering the margin needed at about three o'clock in the morning. And she replied to say, LOL, I just wanted to say I'd been awake for a full 24 hours. she did say that she regrets responding to that email, but doesn't believe that she necessarily said anything inappropriate. But when those emails were published um, online, it really ratcheted up the threats. Um, and she received threatening voicemails saying people were going to convict her, uh, saying there was no need to look over her shoulder, not yet, at least. Um, throughout the course, you know, she even received a letter to her home calling her a traitor. Uh, certainly once people, you know that people have your home address that really ratchets things up. And she left the state with her children for more than a week. Um, She is certainly not alone in terms of election officials who had to leave their home for periods of time. Um, But she is someone who feels very worried heading into 2022 when the races will be focused much more locally. Wisconsin will have a hotly contested gubernatorial race and a very closely watched race for the US Senate, um, along with many other races on the ballot. But those will certainly be very high profile races that people will have very strong feelings about. And she says at this point, people should expect Milwaukee's results to once again come in the middle of the night, unless the laws are changed. We'll see whether people actually listen to that message this time. What are the implications of threats like these? Is it it that it chills this desire by some to serve their community to work on an election commission or board or work for the Department of Elections to ensure that Americans everywhere, no matter whether they're a Republican, Democrat, independent, uh, have a right to vote in fair elections. So does, do these kinds of threats, uh, you know, how do they have an impact on elections going forward? Certainly the concern is that it will lead to fatigue and cause many election administrators to simply ask themselves, is this worth it? Um, I spoke to David Becker of the Center for Election Innovation and Research, and that was his message, was these are workers who are not in this job for the fame or the money. Uh, They're in it because they have a passion for elections and democracy, but it's going to force many of them, no matter how strong they say their resolve is, everyone is human, to at some point ask themselves, is it worth putting up with all of this? And then the concern is, If people uh, who are currently holding these positions, uh, by and large, these are nonpartisan positions, uh, not everywhere, though, that's that's for sure. Um, Will they be put in by people who have a stronger partisan uh, leaning, right? Not necessarily just a D or an R next to their name, but someone who truly sees themselves as a servant to their party above all else. And David Becker said that's where when you remove the professionalism and inject partisanship, that's where you can have issues, uh, not just before, but after an election, uh, during the counting and certification process. Uh, and that is certainly one concern that, that he has and that other experts have is if these threats push out professional election workers, uh, and as he put it, potentially a generation of experience, um, who replaces them? And that's a question that 
can't be answered until that starts to happen, but certainly a big question mark out there, and, and that is one of the concerns. In the city of Philadelphia, no one has more experience working through elections than Al Schmidt. And I say that because I, I've interviewed him. I interviewed him in 2015. I think it was 2016, perhaps. In the middle of that campaign for president, when there were concerns about Russian uh, intrusions in voter database systems, and Al Schmidt is a Republican, but even he was the subject of threats, Adam. It, it was not just Democratic officials who faced threats, right? Al Schmidt is uh, someone in Philadelphia who very publicly faced threats. He said his children, right, even faced threats and had to have protection from police. And that's something that gave him a bit of peace of mind. And he told me that, you know, he tried not to worry about it because uh, to use his words, he uh, did not want to uh, give in to what he called, quote, psychological terrorism from these threats. And he has still faced threats throughout the year. He, he recently uh, stepped down from the uh, Philadelphia City Commission's office to take a different a job in the private sector that deals with the election space still. So he made it clear he's not going anywhere. He is still working in elections in the city of Philadelphia. But he said throughout 2021, as Republicans in the legislature would talk about wanting to do a, you know, quote unquote audit of the 2020 election, the threats against him would ramp back up. And he said they weren't necessarily as specific or as graphic as they were in the immediate aftermath of the election, but it continued to come back to him. And he's not the only Republican who has faced threats. Um, certainly Brad Raffensperger in Georgia has faced many threats. The Republicans on the board of uh, supervisors in Maricopa County, Arizona, uh, have been very open about the threats that they face pushing back against the Arizona Republicans Senate audit um, of the 2020 election in Maricopa County, which is uh, home to Phoenix, uh, for those who don't know Arizona. Um, so it, it is not something that has just been targeted at nonpartisans or Democratic officials, uh, Republicans who were in key election positions in these uh, battleground states and elsewhere uh, were also subject to threats. You are very good at what you do. Um, we have, you know, I think we spoke briefly once. So it's not as if, you know, we're good buddies, we're, you know, great, we're colleagues. And I see the email traffic. I know that you are, you keep busy. And I'm going to build you up this way, Adam, because I wanted to ask you, uh, I know during my career, I just get, I become really passionate about certain subjects. And that's why I choose to cover some of the stories that I choose to cover. What was it about this story um, that really sparked your interest? I think it goes back to actually March and April of 2020 in the early days of the pandemic. So I was one of our 2020 campaign reporters. I lived in Iowa for eight months covering the caucuses. And my job was very much being out on the road every day. After Iowa ended, I went to Texas and kind of did the same thing. I had a Super Tuesday. Um, once COVID started to become a bigger thing, and certainly once the pandemic was declared, campaign reporters like myself, our normal way of operations was shut down. And there were no more in-person events to go cover. And one of the things I quickly gravitated towards was how are they going to run elections in the middle of the pandemic? And I was assigned to cover the Wisconsin primary. And for those who don't remember, that was the first real test of voting during the pandemic. There were changes in the way that the election was going to be run or potentially run until the night before when the United States and Wisconsin Supreme Courts both weighed in. Um, and sort of watching all of that play out and all the changes that had to be discussed, it was very clear in the weeks leading up to that, that the 2020 election, the, the story of the 2020 election was not just going to be who are people going to vote for, but how are they going to cast their ballot? And so I became interested in the topic of elections and the expansion of mail voting and the adjustments that had to be made leading up to that election 
across the country and then sort of focused more intensely on Michigan and Wisconsin uh, states that I covered in, in 2020. And then in the aftermath, following the battles in those states afterwards, the legal challenges, the recount in two counties in Wisconsin, um, and then sort of last year following changes to state election laws and um, these partisan reviews of the 2020 election months after the fact, and sort of knowing throughout this whole time that election officials in just talking to them and listening to congressional testimony and certainly many other outlets have done incredible work on this subject of election threats and intimidation, but I wanted to check in with some folks who I had known for more than a year to hear what 2021 was like, right? The year after a presidential election is normally pretty quiet for, for these workers, relatively speaking, certainly quieter than a presidential election year. But last year was not like that. And having the chance to talk to people who I had known for some of them actually almost two years um, was quite something and something that I wanted to circle and revisit um, as we approached the January 6th uh, one-year anniversary. So looking ahead, oh, I can't believe the midterms are <laughs> this year. For some reason, it feels like the election calendar has shrunk. Um, it's just, you know, it just, or maybe it's just that these campaigns never really ended. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the issue. But we also already see Republicans and Democrats alike uh, setting themselves for se setting themselves up for the upcoming midterm elections. Also, you know, anecdotally, I I've I talked to a couple recently who is they live in the South. Um, they're living in Atlanta currently. Um, you know, they're concerned about the upcoming elections, not only. 2022, but also 2024. And I asked them, well, why are you concerned? And their response was, you know, they're anticipating the potential for violence. And, you know, my response to them was, oh, I don't know. I think the likelihood of that happening is slim. I think the Capitol attack was a unique perfect storm, unfortunately. What do you see, Adam? What do you think? Do you think there is the potential for something really unsettling for this democracy to happen? Well, certainly our recent polling has shown that there are many Americans like this couple you spoke with who believe that uh, what we saw on January 6th was not necessarily an isolated incident, but perhaps a sign of what may be to come, even if it's not on the scale of that. And Jeff, I think you probably remember leading up to Inauguration Day, um, there were many of us at CBS News making calls to state capitals because there were, I'm in Lansing, Michigan right now, and they were taking you know high precautions last year at this time because they weren't sure what was gonna happen on Inauguration Day 2021. Um, Certainly these election officials believe that they're gonna to continue to face threats. And the concern is that some of the things that have to this point been very threatening words and messages could at some point manifest themselves into action and someone could get hurt. So those who are in the middle of it and those who have faced intense threats and pressure for just doing their job over the past 14 months, um, certainly are heading into this year eyes wide open, knowing that security is something that is going to be top of mind, personal security, not just the security of the election. All right, well, that's really unsettling. Every, every time, frankly, that I have to ask that question, you know, I can't, I've been in this business for 30 years. You know, obviously I'm, I'm an American. I grew up overseas for the first 13 years of my life, but I'm an American. And this was always the stable democracy. This was the democracy that everybody looked to as an example. And now when you're talking about a population, you know, could be Republican, could be Democrat, concerned about 
elections, and elections being safe, elections being fair, elections, you know, not resulting in an attack on a landmark. What is the seat of this democracy? And so to be in this situation where a year after January 6th, this is what we are talking about, it is sort of, it's, uh, you know, I think we're long past the wake-up call, but Sort of disturbing. It it has it's rather amazing to think that it's been a year since then, and to hear stories of what people went through. And in speaking to you know in particular, uh, Jocelyn Benson, the Democratic Secretary of State of Michigan, Al Schmidt, the um, Republican uh, in Philadelphia, and, and Claire Woodall Vogue in Milwaukee, and hearing them talk about how this was not something that ended three weeks after the election. This is something that has continued to come up months and weeks after the fact. Um, it, it, they know that these are very intense feelings. And I've, I've spoken to you know, election experts who say that the fact that those feelings are still so intense a year out gives them some extra concern about you know, the future of democracy, because this is not something that went away in the weeks after the 2020 election. It is still very much front and center for part of the country um, more than a year after the fact. Adam Brewster, CBS News political reporter. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So this week we heard speeches from the attorney general. We heard a speech from the vice president as well, and of course, the speech from President Biden. And what you heard was part of the upcoming campaign strategy. These were well-coordinated speeches. And as I listened to the speeches, I was thinking, well, you know, they could talk about former Vice President Mike Pence, who, as you know, the crowd went after that day. They wanted to attack him. He was evacuated from the Capitol. You've probably seen those images. But, you know, I don't know if people consider enough. What could have happened if he didn't certify the vote? You know, Vice President Pence was known for supporting President Trump through thick and thin. And nobody really knew what Pence was going to do until he finally did it after the attack on the Capitol. You know, he could have done exactly what President Trump and some of his supporters in the White House and outside of the White House wanted him to do. And that was, you know, in their words, be a hero and don't certify the vote. But think about what could have happened if he didn't certify the vote. As bad as that day was, that day could have gotten a lot worse. And the weeks after could have been a lot worse. So, I mean, if you, if you look back at history, and this is a question, does Vice President Pence deserve more credit for averting a real constitutional crisis? Now, what happened on January 6th, it was bad enough. I was there. I mean, you probably heard me talk about it a lot this year on America Change Forever. But as we look back on this anniversary, all of those images from that day come, come back to me. For example, the guy who attacked our CBS News truck, who, with this stick in his hand, banging on our truck, seemed to, to really want to injure us. And then when we got out of our truck and headed up to the Capitol, I remember just those images of people climbing the walls, angry people climbing the walls. I've covered a lot of stories over the last 30 years, but I've never seen anything like that. This country has never seen anything like that. And that's the thing. I wonder if people who support President Trump realize the impact of that day. Maybe they do and they're just ignoring it, or that's exactly what they wanted to see. I don't know. Maybe that's not fair. But that was a dark day. It was a dark day when you see 
someone beating up another human being with a flagpole and the American flag on that flagpole. That's the image that I will never forget. And if you've seen it, I'm sure you won't forget it either. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America changed forever. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.